What's up, everybody? Welcome to another edition of the Surf and Sales podcast. I'm one of your two hosts, Scott Lease, here with my good friend and co-host Richard Harris, brought to you today by our good friends at Gong, Salesforce, Revenue Cloud, and Lead411.com. We have uh, been on a little bit of a hiatus. Richard decided to go on vacation a little bit, which I guess he's allowed to do, uh, but we're coming in strong. Uh, coming back strong, I should say, and we've got a really good friend of ours, both on a personal level as well as a more professional business level, a guy that I've known probably since 2013 or so, I think, that I met for the first time in Utah, and uh, maybe we'll get into all that, but he's the CEO of a company you all know and love, Sales Loft, Kyle Porter, welcome to the Surf and Sales Podcast. Stoked to be here. Wouldn't, wouldn't want to be anywhere else. It's uh, always great catching up with you guys. And I brought a little prop for today. This is my uh, phase five. Oh, oh look at that. Board. So I wanted to have this with us. Um, you know, through our talk, I'll put it right here. So it can that be in, so uh, in the view. It's just ready to, ready to get on the water. You'll see I've worn down the foot pad so much that I had to cut out a little piece to, to fill it in. But um, I love that. You know, we're, uh, we're ready to ride it. It's season time, so uh, the water's starting to heat up. I'm so excited for this. I, I just got my second uh, vaccination shot the other day, so I will be soon back on airplanes a little bit and hitting all the, the good spots and definitely overdue to come down and visit you and, uh, and surf down there. Yeah. Kyle, probably everybody here knows uh, what Sales Loft is, is all about. Um, can you tell everybody who might not know, because it's been a while for some people, tell us about like the very first iteration of the product. Because I would think it was still called Sales Loft, but the thing, you know, looked and sounded very different. And that was when I met you and Sean Kester. Um, tell everybody a little bit about that kind of origin story, if you will. Well, I'll tell you, a lot of things have changed over the years, but there has been one that has remained steadfast. And so I'll just kind of preamble to tee up the original version of Sales Loft. But from the very beginning, we wanted to address this giant problem in revenue. And the whole idea behind it was the best sellers and the best revenue organizations that I spoke with and met with, they wanted to provide their customers with an incredible experience, one that was empathetic, sincere, one-to-one, -one, understood their problems, built trust, and, and, and you know gave them solutions, right? Um, but they also wanted that to be something that they could forecast off of, that they could drive a process to. They wanted it repeatable and predictable. And those two things were at odds. And so I got together with a guy named David Cummings. David Cummings is uh, really well known in the venture and SaaS world. Um, his original claim to fame was he was the founder and CEO of Pardot. And so we were working out of the Pardot offices. I, you know, We started the company without an idea of what we were going to do, but just that we wanted to solve this sales problem. And, uh, and then we started building a bunch of different products. Uh, and, and so what you're probably alluding to is sales off prospector, That's right. which grew from about zero revenue to 7 million in a two year period of time before we completely shut it down. Um, but we had product versions even before that, that weren't even as good that, you know, they got canceled along the way, but yeah, you know, we've always been attacking this market from the angle of how do we empower sellers to deliver their customers with an incredible experience um, do it in a way that they can scale so they maximize revenue um, and then use technology to help them kind of fill in the blanks along that journey. So a lot of that has, you know, remained. We're still all about sincere and authentic sales, but 
the products are definitely different. Richard, you, you, can, you well, hold on, Richard, you can relate to this story because you shut down your $7 million business before as well, right? This is something that you would do. Probably, probably yeah. what I do, probably what I would do. <laughs> I wouldn't have the vision. I just would have shut it down. Right. Like that's my, Scott and I've been going back and forth. I, Scott, I'm very good at the tactical stuff. Scott's better at the visionary side of things, but I, I have a question for you, Kyle. How scary was that? Like, like you, you know, we hear about pivot and we talk about pivot, but at least the stories I hear around pivot, it's not when you got 7 million, right. In revenue, yeah. it's, it's much earlier when you're like, Oh, that didn't quite fit or whatever. But you know, what, regardless of whatever reason it was that you pivoted, did it just freak you the fuck out? Like, well, and not, and not to mention this thing was cash flow positive. So it wasn't like we were burning money and we were printing money with it. Right. Um, but you know, I think at sales loft, I, one thing that I think, yeah, I love this question. Have you ever heard this question? What's something you hold to be true that most others would disagree with? Oh yeah. It's my favorite it's a, interview question. It's a really powerful question. And, uh, and one of the, really my answers to that, one of them is that I believe as an entrepreneur, as a founder, you have massive control over the culture of your organization and that organizational health is the biggest sustainable differentiating advantage of any business. And in order to have a great organizational health and culture, you need to be steadfast to your vision, your mission, your values. And the best way to decide whether a company is, you know, what a company's values are, or when they make tough decisions or when they do things that other businesses wouldn't normally do, right? Like there's that story about Southwest Airlines where um, a customer wrote into the CEO and said, you know, during the security training, your flight attendants were making jokes. And she said, I don't think security is something to joke about. But at Southwest, humor is a core value. And so the CEO wrote back, you'll be missed, right? That's the thing that normally a CEO of an airline company would say, I'm so sorry, we'll look into this. We'll make sure that we do things better for you and other, other customers in the future. But he was like, see ya, you know, we like to laugh here, right? And, and that's what that move was all about for us, Richard, is that, you know, we built this company on the backs that we can empower sellers to be more authentic, more sincere, deliver more value to customers, use technology to be informed and insightful about the buyers they're selling to. And this product we had built, it wasn't doing that for us. Uh, what it was doing, it was growing and it was generating revenue, but it was, a lead, it was a lead service, right? It was helping people get contact information for customers and prospects. And what they were doing with it quite frequently was something we didn't love, which is they were just pouring it into the marketing automation grinder and spinning the wheel. Right. And just blasting out spam. How, how long did it, we didn't love that? What was the realization aside from maybe market forces? What was the realization of, okay, we need to th rethink this. Right? It was a like, combination. I, I, I wish I could say it was just one thing, but it was, that was a big piece of it. Um, two, we didn't control our own destiny with that product because it was written to work off of sources like LinkedIn that we don't own, right? And so some people would say that's like building a house upon the sand, right? And, uh, and LinkedIn wasn't a big fan of it. Uh, you know, later there's been some actions that they've taken with other companies. Um, but it was, it was those combinations of our customers are not really, we're not achieving our mission here, um, which is, you know, enabling sincere and authentic sales. We don't control the outcome of the platform. So it's hard to build a multi-billion dollar business out of this. Um, and three, there are players out in the marketplace that we'd like to have a good relationship with that aren't fans of this. And so those kind of three things in combination. But, um, you know, we did a we did a tombstone for it. We sang, a, um, you know, Dust in the Wind and, uh, and Sayonara off to the new thing. Now, it really helped that we had Sales Loft as you know it today, the sales engagement platform. And that was growing at double digits monthly 
And it had so many of these things that we looked for in, you know, really helping our customers. And I, I, assume, I mean, mission. you were also able to sort of convert your current customers to this, right? Like you already had a built-in heavily qualified inbound lead company system. Built yeah, that, that helped a lot. So, you know, it was the same type of customers and the same type of use. I case. want to go way back in the time machine, right? Like way, way back. Was Kyle the hustler in, as a kid? Were you always like delivering newspapers or lemonade stand? Like what, what would mom and dad say that they're like, oh yeah, we always knew he'd be an entrepreneur. Well, you know, Scott and I've talked about this and uh, Scott, I know you shared some of your health uh, things that you've worked through in your life. And uh, I was born with a rare blood disease and wasn't expected to live past infancy. So I had a nurse that would come to my house once a week with a, a needle and a bag of fluid and she'd drip it into my veins for two hours while I watched all the kids in the neighborhood play. And that sucked, you know, right. like I really didn't like that. And so I had a lot of, uh, um, you know, grit and drive and this kind of, you know, I got to, I got to survive. So that was my earliest childhood, but I quickly got into entrepreneurial activities and, uh, and I was out there selling thousands of dollars worth of baseball cards, beanie babies, um, you know, comic books. And then in 1996, I've shared the story a few times. The Olympics came to Atlanta. I'd pop a book bag on my shoulder, hop on my Huffy and just jet out to the Walmart where I'd buy every single Olympic lapel pin that they had in stock that I could afford. Then I'd hop on Marta and take it to, down to Centennial Park and sell them at the Olympics. And that's really when the love of sales came up for me. But I ran landscaping businesses at a computer, uh, computer manufacturing, like a parts assembly business where we'd buy a bunch of motherboards and graphics cards and assemble everything together and sell them. So I did a bunch of things like that when I, I was growing you up. Could safely say, Richard, that his answer is yes. Yes, yeah. absolutely. I, I, I have a, a more somber potentially question around this and is, is relevant for, for you and I, I think in, in particular, uh, Kyle. I, I've often wondered if the, um, the isolation you, you alluded to in terms of having to, all the other kids are out there playing and you're going through this, you know, hell, you know, as a kid, for me, I was in my early 20s. I've often wondered if, if those isolating, you know, traumatic times um, compel you to, to like build something and, and build a sense of community and, and, and like surround yourself with people and, and, and give and help as opposed to like a more unhealthy way, which is to totally withdraw and, you know, go to the dark side, so to speak. Have you, have you ever thought about that as, as any kind of a part of the mission? Like I was away from everybody and now I just, I want to be around all the time and, and create something that other people want to be around. Yeah. You know, I mean, that was my number one desire as a kid was to be a normal kid and to be able yeah. to play with everyone else. And, and I remember when, and I, I went through a pretty miraculous change in my life where my body started to produce blood cells and fight off infection. And this was in uh, age 11. And the minute that happened, I was like, put me on the football team, put me on the basketball team. You know, I want to go out, I went on camps and stuff. And so it was like this, I was just magnetized to kind of get out and hang out with people. And, and, and that became, you know, really my social currency for a long, long time. But I also had this streak after that of, of, you know, really kind of a little bit of anger at the world, you know, for putting me through this. And, uh, and that put me down a little bit more of a selfish or self-serving path where I was out partying, you know, trying to do everything I could to take everything from the world. And that hit a dead end in my college years when I realized I was chasing this thing that there was no rainbow, there's no gold at the end of the rainbow. And that's when I had a real epiphany, which was I've been given this unique talent, skills, capabilities, a story that's like nobody else. 
and I'm sitting here squandering it at age 19, 20, uh, when I should be using it to make the world a better place. And there was this big paradigm shift in my life. And I'll never forget. I know exactly where I was and at the exact date and everything changed from there. And so, you know, really it was about, first it was about taking these talents that I had and using them to serve. But then when I'd hang out with people, I'd start realizing they have unique stories and incredible talents and incredible skills. And so sales loft really was a long time coming about creating an environment where others can come to learn more, do more, become more, take those talents and skills and use them to serve others and find fulfillment. And that's the original reason I started sales loft outside of anything related to sales. I wanted a company to create, you know, to make a change. And I felt like that well, was the best way that I might, could do it. Do you mind sharing that moment? Do you mind sharing that, that moment you remember the epiphany? Yeah. I mean, I'll give you a couple of details. It was November 21st, 2003 and um, no, 2002, sorry. I was a sophomore at Georgia Tech or between my sophomore and, and you know, junior years. And, uh, and I'd gotten in trouble for partying too much. And I basically, you know, I hit a dead end on this lifestyle. And I basically said, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to start doing things differently. And uh, it was a big moment. Cool. Thank Thank you for sharing it. What, um, I'm sure you get this all the time, right? What, what, what advice do you give to the entrepreneur that comes along, right? There's, there's gotta be somebody coming out of college, coming out of tech. I assume you're sort of, sort of an alumni guy over there. Um, what, what do they ask you or what advice do you give them? I mean, I think it all depends on like what you want to do, like what you want to be, what you want to achieve. I think the probably the biggest advice that people don't think through, and I didn't really think through this much, you know, in the early days is, think about the long, long, long-term plan. Like I find myself now thinking about like, what's going to happen 30 years from now? And what am I investing in now? And where are those things going to be? The relationships that I'm building, um, you know, the entities that I'm creating, like that, that's something that I just, you know, I think some of the old um, business leaders who have seen great success, they can impart that wisdom on you. And, uh, and I, I really, every time I've sacrificed the short-term for the long-term, it's been great payout. And I think that's the one that it's hard to see because when you're early on a business, you're like grinding to make payroll, you're grinding to get those first revenue deals. And it's hard to say, how do I set this thing up for multi-decades of success? But I think the more you can, I had a mentor once and he said, take your hands, put them both in front of you, focus on the first one. You can't see the second one in focus. Second, focus on the second one. You don't see the first one in focus, but your job is to go back and forth between those and in, in everything that you do as a leader. So I'm thinking about today, of course, but I'm shifting more and more and more in my focus that long-term as much as I can. So I, I talk a little bit about that. Are you able to, to give yourself a, uh, a moment of, of respite and, and sort of say, holy shit, like I made it or I, I, yes, I'm successful. Can you like utter the words like, yes, I'm successful. Or is that, is that hard for you to, to do? Or do you feel like you haven't made it yet and you still have like, another mountain or two to, to climb. Yeah, it's interesting. It's, it's, it's pretty nuanced and difficult. Um, I, I can feel comfortable saying that to my kids. Mm -hmm. I, I've said that to my daughter and to my son. Um, I've never really said that. I wouldn't say that to my wife, I don't think. Uh, you know, I, I, well, I, I do spend- You still remind you of all the, you know, millions. Yeah, of you still got to take the trash out. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I'm doing all that, but, uh, I think, I think, um, still got a long, long way to go. And I consider myself a lifelong learner that's never done. 
And I believe the longer I go, the more I realize what I don't know. So I realize I don't know more today than I thought, than I realized I didn't know, you know, when I knew a lot less, if that makes sense. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, we just keep moving and, and growing and, and building and, and, you know, I want to take the talents I have and use them for, I don't ever want to retire, you know? So I'm you still don't ever want to, re- you don't ever want to retire. No, I don't ever, I don't know what retiring means. I mean, I always want to do great things and help great companies and build up people and help entrepreneurs and help business leaders. I, I just love it. I mean, I, yeah. I just don't ever want to quit. I mean, uh, that doesn't mean I'm not going to take a, a surf break, you know, um, you know, I could do that all the time, but uh, yeah. I'm just not going to go like 400 days in a row without working. Yeah. 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 Scott, you're never going to retire as much as you might like to think you will. I think my definition of retirement. Yes. It's different than, than other people's potentially though. Would you I still think- do deals? Yeah, of course. Yeah. We'll do a few things, but like, I'm not going to work, you know, nine to five or whatever. You don't do that right now. <laughs> I, yeah. I, know, I know, but later, later on, like, I'm just not, I don't think that I'm going to have the same kind of insane drive. I don't think. You know, yeah, you might get smart. I mean, you, you we're, we're always working smarter too, so we can get yeah, more done. Yeah, I think you, less find time. Ways, you find ways to stay interested in something, participate in things, help people build and create something, but do it in sprints that are very effective and, and efficient, like boom, two, three hours here, done for the day. Yeah. That, that, that's like my idea of retirement. I, I can't disappear for 400 days straight, like Kyle said, Richard. We, I leave, agree. That, we leave that to you. You can do that. <laughs> Probably. Yeah, you're, pretty, you're pretty good at it. I'll ask, I'll ask you guys again in about 10 years. We'll see. <laughs> so I'm a little older than both of you. Uh, so Kyle, talk about um, what's, your, what's your biggest challenge now as you scale the business, right? So how many employees do you guys have right now? So we just passed 500 in the last month. Okay. So that's Congrats, huge. That's awesome. Thank you. So, so now how do you think about, okay, how do I get to 1,000? Right. How do I like, cause I can't even fathom it. Right. Like this is the part where I'm so tactical. Scott could be like, Oh, I know exactly what to do. Um, but how do you, how do you a thousand. Start- I don't know what to do to go to a thousand. So. You know, I'll tell you the, we, we have a very simple, but incredibly elegant one page business charter. And in that we detail the vision uh, where we see a world where sellers are loved by the buyers they serve. Uh, we detail the mission, which I've just talked about. We go through the values And then we have core strategies and we have five core strategies. Those are updated on an annual basis. Sometimes if a pandemic just happens to take place, they may get updated more frequently. Um, (laughs) And two of those five core strategies are what we call enabling strategies. And the other three are called growth strategies. The growth strategies change more frequently. The enabling strategies really are never supposed to change. Um, And the two first enabling strategies are best place to work and best place to be a customer. Now, the definitions of those and the projects that are aligned to those, those always change, but it really boils down to those two. And the first one is that we bring our lofters on board because we want them, like I said earlier, to learn more, do more, become more, take their talents and skills, use them to serve others and find fulfillment. But we also want to love on them in an incredible way so that they turn around and love the customer. Because ultimately, the company that cares the most about the use cases and the personas and the customer, the people, is going to be the one that wins. One that cares the most wins. So that's, that's never changed, will never change. No matter what products we've had, 
we go into selling anything to any industry, that's going to be my mantra for the rest of my life in business. Um, now, the second one is best place to be a customer, right? So this means being the, mo the closest to the customer, understanding the pains better than anyone else. I mean, when I started SalesLoft, we were so fortunate to be in an incubator uh, called, the event, uh, called the Atlanta Tech Village. And there were many, many, many companies in the, the offices around me. And I would literally go and put a chair next to a salesperson and just watch and talk. Hey, go to this place, sign up for this thing, click this thing, click there. What do you think you should do here? And just follow them around and learn and learn and learn. And so I think those two things are really the most important element uh, to get us into that next stage of the promised land, if you will, or a thousand people or you know, 5 billion in value, public company, all those areas. Um, but you know, the other three core values really matter. Or the other three core strategies really matter too. And those are more specific to our business and the growth that we're focused on. Did you, how did you come up with that theory? Like, how did you come up with this? Did you just continually read a ton and then sort of realize this? Did someone coach you to it? Because these are those big picture strategies that I think, um, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs either learn the hard way or they never learn. Yeah, I had a, um, I was part of this um, 10X forum, which is a CEO forum that meets once a once a month or once a quarter. And uh, that one was once a quarter. And uh, the guy in charge of the group, he said, he wrote down on the whiteboard, learn faster than the rate of your own experience. And I remember the minute I heard that, I was like, man, this is a life mantra for me. Learn, I'm going to learn faster than the rate of my own experience. Sure, I can make a lot of mistakes and learn from those, but why not learn from others and, and kind of expand my knowledge and, and wisdom and speed it up? So I think that's part of where that came from. And then just tactically, I think it's a combination of David Cummings, who's a CEO and founder of Pardot, um, a gentleman named Rusty Gordon, who's a mentor of mine, uh, our CEO coach, uh, all the Patrick Lencioni books, um, the biggest one being The Advantage, and, um, and then Trial and Error and you know all the other things. But my dad, my sister, I mean, there's so many influences that kind of make that up, um, but it's just gathering as much wisdom from around me as possible so that it sounds like mine. <laughs> I love that. That's actually, that's like such an understated, perfect quote there at the, at the end that he just kind of slid in. Gather as much information as possible until it sounds like mine. <laughs> I love like that. Scott. Yeah, I love that. I love that. I, 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 there's three things that I think have happened in the last, call it year and a half, uh, since 2020 to, to now. Three sort of tectonic shifts, if you will, in, uh, in employment and, and in sales. Three of them are, are this, um, remote first, side hustles becoming prevalent, common, and almost becoming the hustle. Everybody's sort of diversifying and working towards financial independence. And three, the sort of rise of the community. I would love if you could try to give us your take on any or all of, of those three things and, and how you lead through those um, changes and, and, and how you see those things moving forward, if they have any part of the future of sales loft or no part of the future of sales loft. Yeah, I'll start with coronavirus. I think, you know, before the pandemic, people would always talk about inside or outside sales. And I would have a bit of a contrarian view. I would say, I don't, Someone's like, I don't see color. I didn't see inside or outside. You know, that wasn't a thing to me. What I saw is people that were empowered by technology at varying degrees. And, uh, and so, you know, you sit, in the old days, you sit on a plane, old days, you sit on a plane and, um, and what would you see? 
a bunch of enterprise sellers sitting down next to you, opening their laptop and digitally selling, right? And then sure. they get to the hotel and what are they doing? They're like in the bar with the laptop open, digitally selling. Yeah. And they're walking to the, the Uber and they're on their phone, digitally selling, right? And, and so these field reps that were, they meet people in person. How do 99% of those meetings get set up in the first place through some sort of digital communications, right? So I, I started thinking about it from that perspective. Who's empowered by technology and who's not? Just like, uh, you know, Iron Man, uh, you know, with the suit, right? Um, and so- then when the pandemic happened, it was just an acceleration of that because now everybody's out of the office. Um, inside sales is now inside home, you know, outside sales is now outside the office, but inside, you know, it's all the same thing really. And, and we saw a, a big uh, tailwind with coronavirus at sales loft. So now, best- now, now let me, let me push on th- this point a little more. Are you Im- going to embrace the kind of remote working environment, work from anywhere kind of environment, or are you just like, everybody needs to get back into the offices as soon as humanly possible. I'm putting, no. you, I'm putting you on the spot. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I have three floors of an A plus office space in Midtown Atlanta that I have a contract on till 2016. <laughs> <gotta fill> <laughs> I'm 26, I'm sorry, 2026. Now we're very fortunate that one of them uh, is sublet. So if you're watching this podcast and you're one of my sub lessers, thank you for, for, for doing that. Um, no, I think what happens is the office is um, the priority changed, the order changed. So the office is um, number one, to meet with your colleagues for meetings, like gatherings. Number two, for those who need to work here, right? And so I, I envision a world, and you know, we're not back to the office. We do open Tuesdays and Thursdays um, in, in COVID mode which means there's restrictions and there's a cap. Um, and some people do come. It's like 20 something people are coming to the office on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Um, that being said, I don't necessarily think they need to be there. You know, I, I also don't think they should go their whole lives without spending any time with their colleagues, you know? So there's kind of those two ends of the spectrum. Um, but yeah, we'll see what, what, what happens. I think it's, it's definitely a remote first world. Um, and, uh, but some companies need and want that and, and want to be in person. And that's cool. I think, I think we'll, we'll find out a, a nice way to get us together and have that serendipity of relationships and, and it'll probably be a, a way better scenario, but yeah, we, we got tailwinds from it. Yeah. And what happened was sales cycles sped up because companies weren't doing as much analysis before they bought sales engagement and our digital, you know, sales solutions, um, companies that were like main street America that hadn't as quickly adopted like non-tech companies, yeah. you know, we saw them move a lot faster to get into the space. That's been one of the neatest things is that, you know, so many different industries now are, are buying digital sales solutions. Okay. So now onto the, the sort of uh, side hustle kind of stuff that is, is, is everywhere and, and, or the community side of, of things. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't know much about the side hustle, I, whatever it is, it's probably awesome. I mean, I love when people are out there, you know, I mean, it, it's basically rewarding if you, if you're adding value to other people, right. And, and that's what it is. Can you add a lot of value to other people? And so YouTube stars and, you know, I, I, I love it. You create media, you create content, you move products, all that stuff is great. I think it's interesting because, you know, here, here's a Coinbase. I'm going to pick on, on Brian Coinbase goes uh, public. Brian makes 200, you know, makes $20 billion, right. And this leaked memo comes out where he's like talking about how, you know, 
everybody needs to be Coinbase focused, not focused on anything else. We're not going to speak about this. We're not going to speak about that. Don't put any of your energy and efforts into like other projects and stuff like that. And I think there, there's a divide there because like the pandemic hits, God knows how many people lose their job and they have fuck all to fall back on, right? They don't have like this other side business that at least gives them, you know, money to pay rent, whether that's from something they've created or co like content, for example, or some other kind of, kind of business where they're teaching somebody. Um, and so I, I think that there's this like, I don't want to use the word uh, divide, but like there's just two different philosophies where it's like, no, you need to be all about the company you work for us or like, no, we support you. We want you to be about the company, but we also support you and know that you have other interests and we want you to pursue those. And I think that makes a, a healthier kind of culture. Um, yeah. And there's some, there's some CEOs and companies that are cool with that. And there's some that are not. I, I, I'm totally cool with that. I mean, my whole thing is like, don't do something you're going to regret, right? So if, if you got into a side hustle and you spent 30 hours of your time and you weren't able to be the person you needed to be at the company you're at and three years later, your colleagues are crushing it because they kept you know, yeah. promoting and advancing and your side hustle didn't go anywhere. Yeah, you know? that's, that's on you then. Yeah, yeah it's on you. And I, I mean, yeah. am I going to stop my employees from hanging out with their kids or going surfing or, you know, reading books or, you know, I'm the, I'm the t-ball coach for the three-year-old, you know, t-ball team right now, small ball, like. That's awesome. Is someone going to tell me not to do that? You know, like, no, yeah. I mean, you do what you want to do. And, you know, you be there to accomplish your tasks and you recognize what it takes to get to the next level wherever you want to go and put the work in. And yeah, I mean, that's all yeah. good to me. For what, it's, for what it's worth, Richard, do you remember when I got grief for needing to go coach my uh, son's baseball team? I remember uh, you getting grief for everything. There was, Kyle, I'll tell you the story. But that's, that's one of the things he got grief for that he didn't deserve the grief. Yeah, so I'll, I'll tell you the story. <laughs> There's plenty of others that I did deserve. <laughs> yeah, there, you know, there are all kinds of things, but he, he would, he would give us grief. Like he would like have all his managers on a single text thread and he'd be like, get off your CPU. This is a long <laughs> time ago. Yeah. So you're, you're, you're rewinding the tape 20 years, Richard. Right. Not <laughs> even, dude, I don't know you 20 years yet. So. But I'll tell you that small ball T-ball, that's, that's some fun, man. Yeah. Oh, I, had so to, I had to fun. kick my kid out of one of the games. And my wife came up to me and she, in uh, the next game, he's doing the same thing over again. And I'm like, I'm about to kick him out again. And she's like, would you kick any of your other players out if they did that? And I go, nope. All right, Clark, you're still in. Yeah, it's definitely, definitely hard. The hardest person that you're going to coach is your own child, yeah. for sure. For sure. Yeah, that happens everywhere. Yeah. So Go ahead, Richard. Um, so I, I, had a, I wanted to ask you, because you, you brought up this board behind you, right? So how long have you been wakeboarding? How long, like, you know? I, uh, you know, I grew up on water skis. Okay. Uh, my dad and my mom were water skiers. I remember specific memories of camping out at Lane Clanier and waking up at 6.30 a.m. to watch my mom who had this red hair down past her waist, like all the way past her waist. And she would start on the dock. My dad's in the master craft. He would take off. She would jump start off the dock. She'd go cove and back, cove and back, spraying water as she left. And then she would release the rope and ride right up to the dock, grab on the ladder, kick her uh, ski off, slalom ski, and then hop out of the water, hair completely dry. Oh, and, uh, and I was like, she's my idol, you know? So I grew up water skiing. I had the Snoopy skis when I was like two or three years old. And, uh, and then something crazy happened my senior, or I guess my junior year or sophomore year, I touched a wakeboard 
And I, I've only put skis on like one or two times ever since then. So I moved over to the wakeboard and I was doing, um, tantrums, front rolls, back rolls, three sixties. I blew, um, my eardrums. I've got broken ribs and, um, and I think it was the ankle injury coming down from a big jump where I was like, this is a really tough sport. And uh, <laughs> then the surfboard came out and you can put the big wake out behind, drop the rope and free ride. And I've been doing that now for about, I don't know, four or five years. And were you, uh, just were you trying to be competitive? Like, were you really pushing yourself or were you just that kid who just, I would, it? yeah, I was just, I was pushing myself, but not to, I wasn't in any sort of any of the competitions. You, you were just trying to get, to get upside game. down and impress all the people in the boat and make myself feel good. (laughs) (laughs) What's it like? What's it like being a farmer? Like this is your, I think this is your place, your Zen place. If I, you know, think know you well enough that you you get to go down to the, I wish I would have done this outside. I'd show you, I've got, you know, I'm surrounded by tangerine farm right now. And, uh, it is, my wife is a fifth generation, fifth generation tangerine farmer. Uh, her grandfather, great, great grandfather was an ice salesman from New York, and he would load up ice out of the Hudson River on a train, drive it down to Florida and sell blocks of ice to shopkeeps. And so he had a cold deadhead train said, what can I do with this thing? Let's take some citrus fruit and take it back to New York. And that began the industry, the business. And so um, that was and then what he did was is most of the fruit was by steam steam uh, boat at that point in time. And they were able to cut them out and get the fruit faster. And that began the, the entire business. But they've had some troubles. They had freezes and bankruptcy in the 90s. So my wife's kind of been, you know, in and out of a, a tough, you know, experience here. And um, we had an opportunity to come down here. And it was always her dream to own a tangerine farm. And, um, she had basically supported my dream from the very beginning with sales off without complaining once never nagging me, even when we're, you know, basically first year when we ran out of money and had to start all over. And, um, so it was a great opportunity to use sales off to help her get her dream. Talk about that. That's actually something we don't talk about. How do you bring your wife into your business to seek advice, counsel, share the ups and downs, right? Cause it, it bleeds over, right? Like when you, when you are an entrepreneur, it doesn't really, sh- you, know, you try to shut it off at five o'clock, but it kind of doesn't, right? Yeah. No, how do you navigate? How do you and your wife navigate it? Cause I don't think it's just you. Yeah. Um, I think I'm really fortunate. You know, I, I mentioned April, she grew up in this um, agriculture community and um, they had some tough freezes in the nineties, right? When she was in her formidable years and she made a commitment that she was going to, you know, work to get in a position where the company would never have to deal with that again, the family business. So she went to Emory. She's a CFO. She was an investment banker and she's incredibly talented. Uh, I call her the captain of the ship of financials. And, um, and so she knows business inside and out and she's, you know, we talk through everything. So there's really nothing. I don't, you know, a lot of people say like it's lonely as a CEO, but you know, when I've got April, it's not that lonely. So what, what kind of things do you bring up with April? And, and granted, she definitely has, you know, a, a similar background on the business side, right? Is it, hey, we're thinking of doing this or, hey, what do you think about that? Or it's, you know, I'm it's struggling employee, with this one yeah, person. It's, it's, it's team member stuff. So interpersonal um, people stuff. Um, and then um, the financings, like when we've raised money, she's been involved in that. You know, we talk about that all the time. I wouldn't talk about like pricing strategies or like new innovations, uh, you know, we've made two acquisitions. She's been along the journey for those and been involved. 
Um, but I think the big one is, you know, interpersonal, uh, you know, decision-making. Do you struggle with those? Do you, do you find, was that a harder part for you as a CEO or do you feel like you're pretty balanced in the, in the world of, you know, marketing and product and then leadership and those kinds of things? Um, I mean, there's always room for improvement. I think, you know, I, I, my career grew up with a lot of that experience. Um, and my father, you know, he shared some of his experiences. So I had some, some kind of, I guess, uh, you know, starting point, if you will. Um, but yeah, there's always lots of opportunities to improve. That's, that's what my CEO coach and I talk about all the time is, you know, it's 50% dealing with other people. How often do you look at the farming industry and think, good Lord, if I was done with sales loft, I would build this, that, and the other <laughs> totally just, you know, it's, it's, the farm. it's harder to do than, than I would have thought, you know, I, I, I find myself like weighing into my wife's challenges and um, I'm always wrong. You know, she's always like, that ain't gonna work, you know? And, um, but I think there's, I, I, I've helped out a little bit on the IT side and uh, they've used sales off. They, they had a, um, they had a private label juice product that they were putting into um, grocery stores and gas stations. And they use sales off to really expand that market and get it into a bunch of gas stations, which is really cool. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's hard to do a lot of innovative things. The, the toughest one is that humans pick the, um, tangerine off the tree and, you know, when is a robot going to go pick that tangerine off the tree, especially, you know, when it's hot and no one wants to be there. Um, although we're fortunate that they're, they, they harvest in the late fall. So it's a little bit cooler. Well, I, I would, I feel like I'm always looking at these like category specific kind of. SaaS opportunities. So I would just be, I would probably drive April nuts if I was married. To <laughs> what about this? Couldn't we just like disrupt this thing in the business? Oh yeah. I wanted to do an M to M farm with sensors on all the trees that would communicate yeah. back the temperature and wind speed uh, yeah. to a mobile just device. Modernize, just modernize the shit out of the tangerine. <laughs> yeah. right. they, yeah. they did some really cool things. They did a dwarf rootstock for these tangerines. So the trees would be a little shorter and fatter. So they're easier to pick. And then you can spray them with water when the freezes come, when the cold weather comes. So they're sprayed with water. So the actual tree doesn't freeze, but it creates a little barrier. So they've done some neat stuff. That's cool. That's pretty cool. That's really, really cool. What do your kids think you do? How, first of all, how old are they? Uh, six and three. And uh, we have one on the way. So I guess oh, I didn't know public, that. public announcement. I've never said this in any public forum. Oh, congrats. Um, congrats. Not many people know, but uh, we're due with our third and we just found out it's going to be a girl. So um, that's exciting. I, they have no idea what I do. They just know that it's sales loft and that I'm the CEO. That's, that's do, all. They do know. they know that like daddy does deals or anything like that? That's like about the equivalent of what my kids think. Did you yeah. close? My, my kids are like, did you close any deals today? <laughs> I get that too. If I say no, they give me like the stink eye. <laughs> I haven't gotten to that stage yet. Um, no, they don't, they don't know anything about it. So. That's awesome. Well, congrats on the third one, man. And thanks. Thanks for sharing. Thank you. So, yeah. Um, we all, we always turn this around. I did forget to tell you this at the beginning. And so in, in a second, I'll, I'll ask you, but give you a second to think about it is, you know, what would you like to ask us? We sort of want to hand the mic back to you, but uh, first want to give it just a quick shout out to gong.io, uh, lead 411 and Salesforce revenue cloud. Um, I almost said sales loft revenue cloud, which, you know, would have been funny, but then not funny. So um, <laughs> I think Salesforce doesn't like anyone using the word cloud, so, although they still do it. That's all right. 
that's all right. So what, what can we do for you? How can we be of support to you, man? Like, well, you know, I think what you're doing is fantastic. Of course. Um, you know, how many of these are you guys doing and tell me about, tell about the other strategies that you put in place to build community and really empower your, your, uh, followers. Well, we did, we did 200 episodes last year of the surf and sales podcast. Wow. Um, we decided to do a hundred this year, kind of just dial it back a little bit, but still, you know, two a week. Yeah. Richard, what was, favorite, what was your favorite podcast of all of those? Single favorite. Of last year or everything since? Everything you've done total. Everything I've ever done. Holy smokes. Yeah, with surf and sales. Yeah, 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 yeah. God. Um, the single best one. I kind of think the first one, the first couple of them were my favorite because we didn't know what the fuck we were doing. We were just like... <laughs> and people liked it and i was like oh that's kind of cool i also think the one that kevin dorsey did because we did this back in february of last year so over a year ago where he talked about being the only right and he and he talked about being the only you know black person not even black man but just the black person or person of color and um you know just really talking about that i think was was probably one of my favorite ones because i just it opened my eyes a whole lot sooner in, in ways that I didn't realize they were even shot, you know? So, um, so that one was really good for me. That was That's happened a lot for me in the last year and a half. Yeah. And it's really good that it has, but it's also, I wish it had more in the yeah. past. It's kind of like, it's silly. Like really yeah. it took me this much to figure this out. Right. So, um, but uh, on, the, on the community side of things, um, I mean, surf and sales as a community is, is really small on purpose because it's like 20 people every event right but looking back on it you know i think we feel like we were a little bit early on the kind of micro community bandwagon right we were kind of one of the first people we think at least that was like no i don't want to have you know a hundred thousand people at my conference no offense kyle right just like let's do something different than that and that led to you know creating the podcast, but then it led to, you know, Thursday night sales, for example. So now like the largest virtual sales happy hour every single week, we've had 13,000 people come to our happy hours in the last year. Um, and then, you know, I, people, Galem and Jared used to come to Thursday night sales and Amy and I kind of helped a little bit in the beginning as they started Rev Genius. So that's been kind of cool. That led to kind of, uh, personal micro communities and things throughout like a Patreon type type site. Um, and then, you know, participating in, in, in big, large Slack communities, whether it's Revenue Collective or some of the ones I just mentioned. I just think that, you know, in the last year and a half in particular, when everybody detached from the office and their colleagues, people were starved for community and belonging yeah. and a place to get advice without judgment bring up problems and challenges in a safe kind of space, discuss, uh, you know, racial issues, political issues, anything and everything in a way that there was no judgment and, and no, no kind of consequences perhaps. Are you a clubhouse believer? I, I, I believe in the potential of it. I do not believe in the current application of it. Um, and my thing with clubhouse is if I'm going to pick that up, I have to put something else down because I don't have the bandwidth to do everything, despite, you know, me thinking that I can do everything. I can't. 
So I, I can't figure out at the moment what to put down in order to put emphasis on Clubhouse. So yeah. that's kind of where I'm at with it. What, what would you guys like to see on LinkedIn, more of on LinkedIn and less of on LinkedIn? Go ahead, Richard. You want to answer that one first? No, you go first. I want to think that one through for a second. Okay, less of, I'm just going to make a joke a little bit, but like, I'm so sick of polls, I can't even begin to tell you. If I never see another poll on LinkedIn again, it'll be too soon. Um, and, and everybody who's for years said, oh, I don't do this for the views and the likes and all that kind of shit. Bullshit, all of your fucking polls are in there right now because you know it's got the juice. Because LinkedIn <laughs> game the algorithm to give you the juice. So I want to see less of that. What do I want to see more of? I, I want, I would, I wish LinkedIn would care to invest in their actual product and fix some of the things that people have been clamoring about for years, such as the inbox. The direct message inbox experience is, is absolutely atrocious. Okay. Um, it's also a nightmare for super users. I don't know. I don't know what you want to call it, but people who have 30,000 connections or more, it, it takes hours to go back and find a way to remove connections that maybe you're not close with anymore. Or you don't remember who they are to make room for new ones. There's no searchable, easy way to do this. Your worst day on LinkedIn shouldn't be your birthday. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes, because you're going to get hammered with 100,000 messages. Yeah. Yes. And they're all going to say, and they're all going to be the click, just click this auto message. That's right. right. Yeah. God forbid right, there's right. like real, real yeah. lead in there where they're saying, I want to buy your software, you know, and you're like, I can't even find it. It's not, I'm not even going to know. Yeah, that's right. So, um, I, I, I think my, my biggest challenge is that it's, it just needs a cleaner interface, right? I want to be able to find things a little bit faster for me. Um, I also think that the, I wish they would find ways that the algorithm didn't have to be gamed so much, right? Like I like the idea of being able to put an image of the three of us, you know, having this conversation so that people can listen to you and hear what you have to say, but we all know that sucks. Like that's just not going to be seen. Right. So I, I wish there was a way they could figure that piece out a little bit, um, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, so I think that's the piece that I wish wasn't there. And I also, you know, I think my biggest pain, Scott knows this is like just the time. Like, I think it's silly that I have to get up at five in the morning to post something at 6 a.m. to get any kind of decent traction, right? As, a, mm -hmm. as one of those users where Scott gets to wake up at, you know, eight in the morning and post something at his time. So, you know. <laughs> Does that mean I get to wake up at nine? Exactly. Maybe 830. <laughs> Right. So <laughs> um, who, who, last question. And, and you guys opened it, opened it up by letting me ask, um, who do you uh, top one or two people to follow on Twitter? Doesn't have to be about sales, but just in general. Whew. Top one or two people to follow on Twitter. I, I see Twitter as a necessary evil. Um, so I, you know, I, you know, and I'll, you know, Scott's going to love it. it. It's probably Scott. I'm like, well, what does Scott have to say today? Cause I just don't use it like Scott that like Scott's much more of a tweet guy than I am. So, um, <laughs> but I'm, I'm arguably terrible at it. Like I, I have, I've yet to cross like 2000 followers on Twitter, um, yeah. but I don't, I don't use it the same way. Like I, I interject like ridiculous thoughts about food and shit. Like you, you replied to my avocado thing with advice with the everything spice. Brilliant by the way. Um, so I interject like we get two avocado trees right out here. 
I'll interject ridiculous things like that with sports things and uh, political stuff as well as business stuff. So I don't use it probably as, as well as I should um, for, for business in particular. Uh, and for me, I guess for now I'm, I'm, I'm okay with that. Yeah. So, um, you know, one, one person who I think has figured out how to use Twitter phenomenally, uh, in the last year is Justin Welsh. Okay. Uh, He's gone from having like zero followers on Twitter to, I don't know what he's at, but he's just all aboard this, like build, 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 build in public, create this, create that. Um, and he's figured out a great way to kind of, you know, get these sound bites in, in, in tweets. Uh, and, and people like us, people are all about that kind of stuff right now. So I think he's, he's on the pulse of the, the workforce a little bit. Gotcha. Yeah. So I, I would, I would say him. Yeah. Cool. I really like the guys from the all in podcast, Chamath, Paula Hapatia, David Sachs, Jason Galkanis. Those guys are great. I think they have good Twitter accounts too. Cool. Well, Kyle, thank you, man. We literally ran out of time, like physically ran out of time, which is unusual. So, um, and fast. So thank you so much for coming on. We really, really appreciate it. And, and, you know, on the personal side, congrats on the baby. And it's good to see you. Haven't seen you in a while. Look forward to, you know, sharing a cocktail with you at some point in the next 12 months. So now this, now this means we're on the clock as far as uh, wake surf and sales in Florida. Right. When, when, when do we know the due date? Oh yeah, um, it's October twentieth. We're well, on the summer. Clock. All right. We're officially on the clock. Okay, we have urgency, and sometimes you need urgency in order to get things done, Richard. Maybe we get. Maybe we go in late June for Scott's birthday. <laughs> I like the way you're talking now. Yeah. Awesome guys. Well, thanks for having me. It's uh, definitely been my pleasure, and I uh, appreciate all that you do, and uh, really appreciate you bringing me on today. Thanks all right, so man. Much.